Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. Someone who I've had requested a number of times and I'm glad to say is finally here. Dr. Paul Gottfried, thanks for joining me, sir. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. For anyone who isn't familiar with Dr. Godfrey's work, he is, of course, the editor at Chronicles Magazine. He is an author of many very insightful books. You should definitely check those out, and I'm sure he'll tell us some more as we get into this. But we're going to be talking today primarily about, we'll talk about a few things, but we're going to be focusing primarily on the concept of a therapeutic state, which I think is really important. I think it's going to help people understand a lot about what is happening in the United States and the wider Western world today. So Mr. Godfrey, could you go ahead and explain what the idea of the therapeutic state is? Yeah, um, by, by the therapeutic state, um, I mean the, uh, the typical political uh, regime uh, in which uh, Western countries are now living and which seems to be the end product or the end point um, of a, a very long development uh, one that has to be traced back at least as far, I think, as the creation of the modern welfare state, uh, which, uh, you know, I've argued in my book after liberalism has to be seen as beginning in the early 20th century with progressivism. Um, it sort of continues in America through the New Deal. Uh, in Europe, it has its counterparts. I mean, in Sweden, you have a social democratic government elected in the 1920s. Um, uh, then you have in England, a labor government after the war, uh, various socialist coalitions in France after World War II. Um, and what comes out of all of this is a government which becomes involved with economic redistribution, uh, social engineering, um, and increasingly will colonize the family. Um, I think that this, to some extent, is secondary uh, in earlier phases of the welfare state. Um, I don't think Franklin Roosevelt really, really cared very much about, uh, you know, cha changing gender relations, maybe his wife did, but I don't think this was an overriding concern for him. Um, the, uh, uh, in, in the United States, you know, LBJ talks about some of this stuff, um, but he's much more concerned with economic redistribution um, uh, and with fighting the war in Vietnam. Nonetheless, I think by the 1960s in the United States and in other Western democracies, uh, the state does become involved in what's called family policy. Uh, and family policy will be inextricably linked to other things like fighting prejudice, discrimination, inequality in the family, uh, patriarchy. Um, all of these things come under uh, attack um, as what I call the therapeutic state develops. And uh, there, there's a very uh, good book on the subject written by Christopher Lash, who actually wrote more than one book um, on the therapeutic state, um, showing, showing its development. He, 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 he links it, um, I think, significantly to the Frankfurt School, um, or as I argue in my books, the Frankfurt School as it develops in the United States because I think you see a full flowering of it here rather than in Germany, uh, since most of its leaders come to the United States uh, with their particular brand of radicalism, cultural radicalism in the 1930s. They're driven out by the Nazis. They come here. 
They will partially reestablish themselves at the University of Frankfurt in Germany after in 1951 and thereafter. Uh, but most of them remain in the United States. Um, and uh, while some of them are theoretical Marxists, uh, what is the focus of their attention is fighting fascism as it manifests itself as prejudice in the bourgeois family. And th th this is, uh, one might say, an invitation to social reconstruction, uh, which is not lost um, on what we call in America, I suppose, the deep state or its counterparts in Europe. Uh, and more and more of um, uh, the welfare state's activities become bound up with this, with family policy, reconstructing social relations, and what becomes, I think, in many ways, the most important aspect um, of this therapeutic reconstruction of society through the state is fighting prejudice, discrimination. Um, and here I argue in my book on anti-fascism that somehow the, the model of Nazi Germany is always uppermost uh, or kept uppermost in the minds of, uh, of citizens who have been turned into subjects of the therapeutic state. Uh, and they're told that unless they go along with this social reconstruction, uh, not only the Germans, but the Americans and everyone else can become Nazis. Um, and, you know, as I show my book on anti-fascism, one typically finds the arguments over the last 20 to 30 years sort of going this way, that um, if uh, you do not want to accept the latest wrinkle of feminism or LGBT, you know, this can lead ultimately to another Auschwitz. I mean, it's sort of, we'll just go, we'll just go, go in this ominous direction unless we continue to receive guidance from enlightened social engineers. Um, now, as, as I indicated before the show began, I'm not quite sure how you got out of this uh, because the people who are pushing the therapeutic state are so powerful. They control media, education, all of the um, most important institutions in Western countries. Uh, and uh, every time you send your kid to school, you know, they're going to come back with a gender reassignment or something else. Uh, and it's, it's or uh, they'll be taught to hate the white race because they're, they're a race that discriminates by their very nature. Um, and I, th I think what you see over the last, since the 1960s, certainly, um, is a radicalization um, of this of this therapeutic social engineering. It becomes more radical, um, and it becomes more hostile to what is traditional Christian bourgeois society, whatever existed or Judeo-Christian society, whatever existed in this country before. What I grew up with in the 1950s is obviously all evil. Um, what one of the latest wrinkles about this, and I'm always you know complaining to my wife. As I turn on TV, I don't see white people in advertisements anymore. I don't see white people, you know, in, the only time you see them is they're villains, you know, and they're, they're committing uh, heinous acts of racism or homophobia or something like that. Uh, you, television entertainment has simply become social reconstruction. Um, yeah, you, and, someone has to play the villain in the uh, in the ADT home alarm commercials, right? That's the only time you see. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But it just goes on and on. I mean, they right. they, they never give you breathing space. Uh, this is something I've noticed that in the, you know in the sixties, seventies, we sort of moved in this direction, this portentous direction, but it was done sort of slowly. You can catch your breath. Um, uh, since the election of Joe Biden as president, it's it's uh, you know everything has. Uh, 
has moved exponentially uh, toward the cultural left and toward this therapeutic reconstruction. Well, to your very point, you know, the president of the United States got on stage after calling his political opponents directly fascists right. and gave, you know, gave that speech about, you know, the 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 eternal struggle against the enemy within. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I, th I think that's exactly right. Now, one of the things I, I found very interesting about your concept, which, you're, you know, I first uh, interacted with because of Christopher Lash. So uh, so that's where I became aware of it. But mm -hmm. but I wanted to explore the transition. So hopefully we can we can kind of trace the steps for people so they can mm -hmm. understand kind of how this emerged. So I think more and more people with kind of the resurgence of, of James Burnham are understanding the idea of the managerial revolution. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm wondering, given your description of the therapeutic stake with the managerial apparatus, was it always inevitable that the managerial apparatus would need to seek out a program like this to kind of expand its influence into the realm of places like the family where it otherwise would be pushed back? Yeah, I, I address this in my book on after liberalism, liberalism being bourgeois liberalism in the 19th century uh, and the welfare, welfare state democracy being post-liberal. This is the argument I'm making. And I, I say that, that one could have a welfare state and a managerial state of the kind that Burnham and Pedro Gonzalez and others and Sam Francis are. One could have that kind of state, uh, but you do not. You do not necessarily have to have a therapeutic state or one as extreme as what exists right now. But I would say it is a, a necessary precondition. You know, if you were living with the state as it existed in 1850, you couldn't do any of this because you would not have the apparatus. Uh, the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic control that would be necessary to carry out this therapeutic experiment. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's a very interesting point. It's a, it maybe not the necessary end goal, but it is a, mm. a prerequisite for it to emerge. You know, Bertrand de Juvenal talks about these collapsing spheres mm. of social influence, right? He talks about how for power to centralize, they have to get rid of the influence of things like the family and the church and, and these different organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering if you thought that that was a, a natural part of the centralization of power, or if that this regime that has emerged now is particular to, I guess, this ideology and not power centralization itself. Right, right. But I, I, I think one has to simply look at the sort of building blocks to in order that have to be, um, uh, that, that have to be created or constructed before you get to this stage. And, uh, you know, you, you need a modern state. Uh, another thing is you need Christianity in a very, in a very decadent form, right? right? Where you talk about loving kindness, universalism, but you, you're not too specific about doctrine uh, or things in, you know, certainly the biblical tradition that, you know, point in a different direction. Um, I don't see too many therapeutic states in the Buddhist or Muslim world. Right. So I, 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 th I think there is an affinity that it has to what I, I, I say, a sort of decaying, heretical kind of Christianity. Um, you also need a large, a large administrative state, a managerial state. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to carry this out. Um, what's also helpful from the point of view of the therapist, the therapeutic state is our media that cooperate, which exist in every Western country now. They're all the same. They just speak different languages. They have the same points of view. Uh, so you have a media apparatus and then you have public education, which pushes the same the same doctrines. So uh, with, with, without without these these pre-existing um, uh, or, or uh, pre-existing pre institutions or preconditions, you're not going to get to the therapeutic state. 
Um, what, what, what I find fascinating is the, the way it has accelerated, you know, in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, even in the 1980s, I could not imagine, you know, gender reassignment being taught or the, uh, the war against the white race. The war against the white race led by white leftists, which makes it even more interesting, right? Or, you know, these uh, Black Lives Matter riots, you know, Antifa riots, you get white people, affluent white people joining this. So, I mean, what, what you see is a cultural transformation that, that has already occurred. And um, I, I, it's like something that almost, in my case, it was something that, that was able to sneak up on me because I was not even aware that these changes were happening so quickly. Um, and even moving you know, from the 1980s uh, to the early 2000s, it's, 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 it's incredible how quickly uh, the therapeutic state became radicalized and radicalized much of the younger generation in America. It's very interesting that you pointed out that you need a Christianity that's completely severed from the doctrine, like that that, mm-hmm. that has many of the the principles of that might create some kind of universal mm-hmm. or compassionate understanding, but it, but is completely removed. Do you think that the uh, the 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 kind of the final uh, removal of those principles was part of the acceleration process. The the fact that you had many of these barriers that you like you said would have been unthinkable to to pass in maybe the seventies even or the eighties suddenly became very passe. You had you know mm-hmm. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton saying that they were for traditional marriage in two thousand eight, right. and but and now you have Republicans voting for the redefinition of right. the permanent codification of the redefinition of marriage. Yeah, I think one of the problems, as I've argued, and this has made me very unpopular in the conservative movement, as you know, is that um, the. Uh, the conservative movement won't stand up for anything except maybe corporate tax breaks and making war somewhere, you know, helping defense industries. Um, you cannot get them to stand up for moral principles of any kind. The principles have existed for thousands of years that everyone assumed when I was, they, they won't, they won't defend this. Um, and, you know, as I like to point out, the first generation of the Frankfurt School was socially more conservative and the so-called conservative movement in the United States. They considered homosexuality to be a sexual deviance. Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, they all believe this. Uh, now we have to glorify it. Not only that, but we have, you know, gender reassigned Republicans coming on Fox News, you know, to push the Republican Party. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's nowhere these people will not go looking for votes. <laughs> you know, they don't seem to have any principles of, uh, you know, they keep saying, we have principles, we have values, I'm still looking for them. Or, you know, as, as somebody once said that someone uh, said about some English statesman, that he has, uh, he has values, he changes them all the time, you know, yeah. he, he's changing them. <laughs> so, so I'm interested, because you've, you've uh, men- mentioned the Frankfurt School a number of times, and there's a lot of debate on the right specifically right now about kind of the origins or even the nomenclature of cultural Marxism, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people mm-hmm. push back and say, this isn't Marxism or this isn't related mm-hmm. Marxism. Marxism is a economic theory. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with this. What would you say to, to, to the notion that this is cultural Marxism, what we're experiencing now? Well, you must know my position. I, I think it has very little to do with Marxism. And although, the, you know, and there is, there's a kind of transitional stage, which you see in the Frankfurt School, because, uh, and by the way, the word Kulturmarxismus in German is a derogatory term, but I can't think of anything, anything else to call them, uh, except, you know, the, uh, 
members of the Frankfurter Schule or something, but I, it's very, very hard to come up with another term. Um, but what they do is they turn the focus of social culture, of co social radicalism to culture and the family without ever, and certainly in the case of Marcuse, who's my teacher, he never renounces Marxism. They'll defend anything in Marx, I remember saying in a classroom. Uh, and he will, you know, he makes some, some sort of um, uh, clumsy attempt to defend everything in Marx. But, but it was the social radicalism, which was the essence of what the Frankfurt School pushed. Um, and, uh, they, and they were, I think, properly uh, chastised um, and, and worse than punished if they got hold of them by communist regimes. It, you know, this is not Marxism or Marxist-Leninism. This is some decadent bourgeois philosophy you're giving us. And the communists were right. You know, this, this was not Marxism. And then by the time, you know, by, by, by the time that I hear Mark Levin on Fox News explaining that the reason we have gender reassignment is it's, Mar it's, it's American Marxism. Well, it's, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with Marxism. Um, it's what I call in, my, in one of my books, the post-Marxist left. It is still recognizably of the left because uh, these cultural uh, radicals talk about equality. Uh, they attack Western parochialism. They want universal. These are all, I might say, leftist attitudes or gestures, but they are not the same as Marxism, which is a socioeconomic system and which you know, in its moral positions is quite conservative. Like the French Communist Party condemned homosexuality. Well, the homosexuals into the party. Yeah, Stalin, not exactly a fan. Party. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In interesting, because I think a lot of people mm -hmm. get confused because they see the conflict between early vanguard leftism and kind mm -hmm. of the managerial establishment. Sam Francis said that it was it was a misunderstanding, right? That the vanguard left was kind of harassing the managers, but the managers were already moving in the direction of adopting these things. They simply weren't moving fast enough. They didn't want to boil the frog too quickly, right? Do you think that yeah. that's a, a break as to why people misunderstand kind of the origins of this and the, the attention of between maybe corporate America and leftism that doesn't exist in the same way today? Right. I, I, I think there, there also is a tendency in the United, in the conservative movement, certainly since the 1950s, to call anything they don't like socialism or Marxism. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are many uh, unpleasant things out there that are not socialist or Marxist. Um, and I, I remember uh, somebody coming up to the late Thomas Molnar. This was at a Philadelphia Society meeting in the 1960s. I'm sort of giving my age away here. But the uh, there, there was some young man said... Uh, Professor Molnar, um, you know, communism and Nazism, they are the same thing. And he sort of smiled and said, not exactly. And that's right. They're not exactly the same thing. They may have some overlap, but, you know, and they're, bo they're both unpleasant, but they're different. <laughs> and uh, I think this, this is true about what I call now just wokeism, uh, which is not anti-capitalist at all. Mm -hmm. Which means that it cannot possibly be Marxist, right? And Marx, the Marxists would want to overthrow the corporate capitalists. The uh, uh, the wokesters are are delighted, you know, to have the the support of corporate capitalism. And anyone who really believes that a woke regime is going to go after, you know, uh, Bezos or people like that is has to be crazy. I mean, these are the ones supporting the regime. Uh, Soros. I mean, you know, they're. Uh, or whoever's managing Coca-Cola or Disney World, uh, they're in alliance with the woke left. They give money to the Democratic Party in the United States. Uh, 
Um, so, you know, it's uh, to say, well, you know, that, well, there, there were some some people back then when the communists were in power who were capitalists who supported them. Very few. Um, uh, and, you know, they typically supported communism in Russia, not in the United States. Uh, and they made money out of it. But here there's a very close working alliance between corporate capitalism and the cultural left. You know, the, uh, it's, it's, it's something which I think one forces one to question whether we're looking at Marxism. Now, on the other side of that coin, a lot of people will say the things that are happening right now are a natural consequence of capitalism or liberalism, that they say that these are kind of the eventual outcomes because, you know, they're looking to standardize consumption. And, and again, mm -hmm. Francis makes this argument, I think, mm -hmm. in some ways that that this means that you when you're having an optimized company, you're always going to have a movement towards this. Do you feel like that's true? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it's totally true. No, I agree with Francis on that. I think, you know, we, what, what uh, Marx called, uh, or Hilferding called Spätkapitalismus, late capitalism very definitely has a connection to wokeism. Um, and, you know, and I think part of the motive is economic. You want to break down national barriers. Uh, traditional religious attitudes are bad because women will stay at home and raise kids rather than have abortions, you know, and become consumers and so forth. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this explains everything, but I, I think there's no economic incompatibility between this cultural radicalism and, and late capitalism. So I think the question that a lot of people have when they look at the therapeutic state, well, actually, before we get there, I want to ask you one more thing on kind of the nature of the therapeutic state. I want to get to that before we, we go any further. So one thing that I've noticed, I think, is that the demystification of the human being has been a really key part of this, right? The idea that everything is knowable, everything is quantifiable, everything is programmable, that you can put experts in charge of every aspect of human mm -hmm. life gives the state the authority to then step in mm -hmm. and, and control these areas. No, I, I think I think it's absolutely right that people are, people are quantified, they no longer have spiritual worth. But at the same time, there is a hierarchy, a spiritual hierarchy that's being created. Like um, the black underclass obviously is more important than some white working class person, you know, living in my town, which is, uh, or, you know, in some Rust Belt place. Um, so there is a hierarchy or the, the homosexual lesbian has a higher moral status than the heterosexual, right? We treat him with much more respect. And the transgendered is, may, may have even more. So there, there, there is a hierarchy, a kind of mystical spiritual hierarchy that's created even within this, um, uh, this world context. But I agree with you, it's the quantifiable nature of human beings that allow the, the welfare state to say that, you know, these, uh, every, everything is measurable. You know, human beings, uh, uh, how long are you going to live? How much are you going to cost the state? What you're, what you're worth in terms of your labor? Like, you know, explain, you know, what's good about a mother and a housewife? Well, she really produces this quantum of labor. I've seen this from, from, li from libertarians, conservatives, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to quantify it. You know, the, the, the human relation is secondary, but the, the, the labor can be quite. And by the way, I think libertarians do a lot of this stuff. They, they, they love quantifying things. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. Unfortunately, that is a tendency that runs not just left, but right as well. In fact, I think it's the right's willingness to embrace much of this language, which is a real problem. Today, nothing is evil. Everything is a psychological condition, right? Everything is, a, you know, oh, they're crazy. They're psychotic. They're, you know, they're some kind of narcissistic personality disorder. There's a removal of kind of the concept of evil. And that means that everything is kind of be can be ameliorated through this process, right? The, you know, bring in enough psychologists or psychiatrists, put people on the right plan, deliver the right message, grow people up inside these different institutions, and you can completely shape the human being. And that thing seems to be like a key part of the therapeutic state. Yeah, but again, there's a contradiction there. I, I, I do mention that, that point about what I call the pathologization of dissent mm -hmm. in my book on multiculturalism. But I think we've gone beyond that. There is a return to good and evil. Mm -hmm. um, but e evil are the nor the normal people are evil. Uh, the people who are doing things that would have been considered insane, perverse in the past, they are they they are um, they they are really spiritual guides to the rest of us. Like you know, you bring on TV some gay person who says, you know, uh, I'm exploring a new dimension of love and of human feeling, and the whoever's you know interviewing them, <clears throat> you see them on the. Uh, what is it, the four or the five? Sometimes I turn on these awful programs, but they really are treated like, like Christian saints. Um, so I, I, and then, of course, the people who oppose this are not simply sick, they're evil, right? I mean, President Biden told us this. Mm -hmm. These are evil people. I mean, they're like Nazis. They may be even worse because they're, you know, they're so insidious and that they don't always surface. And uh, the only thing we know about them is they voted for Donald Trump. So yeah, I, th I think you're right to point out that maybe the maybe the uh, scientism was a transitory ideology, right? right? Mm -hmm. It broke it broke down and gave a rationale for the reason that these things need to be dismantled, but it was never going to be permanent, right? It eventually would have to be replaced with the ethical system you're talking about. There's right. no neutral institution; it's just a way to to disassemble what was there and then reassemble something else under the guise of this neutrality. Yeah, I, I think what we saw, you see, the, the, the scientism um, is, one might say, a brief period where there's some attempt made to um, uh, retain a relationship to reality, <laughs> like, you know, science. Uh, now, we know, now, of course, you know, science is racist and sexist. We've sort yeah. of gone beyond that. We've gone into total lunacy. Um, one of the things that I you know, that really interests me is how anyone can believe this woke nonsense. And this is not like Marxism, which claims to be scientific, which uh, to a certain degree can argue even rationally. Uh, even the Nazis could do this, you know, intermittently, although they behave, you know, quite uh, demonically. But now we're talking about people who are totally, uh, who make no sense. You, you cannot even, uh, and, and then for different words are condemned on different days of the week because they're offensive. And uh, you're told that mathematics is racist. You're not supposed to study this anymore and so forth. Um, the communists, no matter what, you know, what their theory may have indicated, uh, knew that science was important. Right. <laughs> they leave you alone. <laughs> it's science. These people won't, you know, and they've already invaded the medical field. Um, and, you know, as, as my son and brother, both of them are physicians, told me, you go to, well, my, if you go to a medical school now, uh, you're absolutely brainwashed with, with wokeness. You have to go through woke sessions. Um, my late wife uh, grew, uh, grew up in communist Poland, and it was not as bad. 
I mean, the, the communists were not as bad. These people are, are control everything. They're total lu lunatics. Uh, it's like, you know, I'm watching something on TV about Jesse, uh, Jesse Owen, and he ran in the 1936 Olympics, and the Nazis were controlling this. And they were, of course, very unpleasant people, but Hitler did shake his hand, you know. Um, and now everything is woke. Do you, do you believe they'll even let you into something unless you, you know, you practice wokeness and you have to wear a woke uh, shirt if you play hockey, right? If you don't want to wear this, they're going to throw you off the team. Um, I mean, this goes beyond anything that, that I can imagine. Uh, I mean, communist countries were not this crazy. Um, you know, they, uh, they left you alone, at least part of the time. They left certain institutions alone. What I find interesting about this, this woke left is it embraces everything. Everything in every Western country at the same time, uh, you know, and I think people hundreds of years from now, if they survive this, may, uh, may try to understand how this happened historically. Because, you know, even though I write books on this, I'm still mystified. Yeah, it's quite wild. You know, uh, one thing that always sure. captivated me was looking at uh, Oswald Spangler and he in the decline of the West, he said that uh, he predicted that the West would walk away from science and, and mm -hmm. math. He right. said that, you know, you basically they would grow tired of the constriction of these, mm -hmm. uh, the, the quantification, it would become too exact and they would they, they would fall away from this and pursue like a second spirituality. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like wokeness might be the coming of that, where where the, this is now all encompassing and it, it forces people to abandon basic things like science and math after this? Uh, of course, Spengler has a relatively happy outcome because you have Caesars rising, right? You know, and taking power. I don't think we'll yeah. be that lucky. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's well, that's the uh, you know the uh, what is the term? It's something. It's not part of maybe it's, it's not part of Genesis. There's some other term he uses for this about the uh, the second spirituality. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the term right away. Spirituality is never as genuine as the first. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that we might well be living through that phase because it, because the, in many ways, wokeness is a sort of a crude, uh, insulting imitation of Christianity. Right. Right. So I, it, I think I think that that may be the link. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So the the thing that you've hit on multiple times, and I think is the big question for a lot of people, is this seems so insane. How can you know it can't go on forever, right? Like like eventually you lose function. Like your your society stops producing. It can't land airplanes. It can't produce new right. prescription drugs. It you know it can't do the things it used to do. And something has to give. I, I guess there's a couple questions wrapped up in in that. But what do you think about this idea that that naturally there will be some kind of pushback because like the natural consequences of this mass ideological control have to like bear fruit at some point? Yeah, I, I, but I, I think the pushback may come in the form of uh, a disintegration of the alliance. Hmm. Uh, and I've argued this for years that the 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 woke alliance is unnatural. Um and it's not like, you know, the Democratic Party uh, around 1930. So you had Irish Catholics, Russian Jews, Southern whites, everybody voting for it. Because they just, you, know, you voted for one party rather than the other, right? Your entire life was not affected by this. Right. You know, and you got favors from the party. Not, now we're talking about uh, what, what is a full-time revolutionary movement uh, that's, you know, utterly devastating society and just destroying us mentally as well as uh, materially. 
Um, it, it's, it's, but it's, it's made up of groups that don't have any natural cohesion with, with, with each other. So you have, I mean, what, what do Muslims in Europe, uh, Muslim fundamentalists who are being brought in, what do they have in common with feminists or homosexuals who are part of the alliance? Uh, what do black nationalists have in common with transgender? I mean, you, you look, I mean, you know what they have in common. They hate the white Christian core population, uh, right? The, the autochthonous population that has been there all along. <clears throat> um, even if it's weakened and has lost its belief system and so forth, they still see it as their enemy. Uh, so, you, you know, you could unite against a shared enemy. But once you've done that, what else do they have in common? I mean, what kind of program? And, and of course, it seems to me the really nasty groups in this alliance, the physically nasty groups, Muslims, black nationalists, have been very restrained. You know, they've let the, uh, the feminists, the gays, others sort of run these movements. Um, at some point, they may want to take over and take much more power for themselves. Um, and you know, they'll start fighting among each other as well. So I, I really don't see this as a very cohesive alliance beyond destroying what is perceived as a common enemy. Yeah, Curtis Yarvin called the left a mystery cult of power and that the only thing that actually binds them together is their desire to kind of disassemble the current hierarchy. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's really all that's necessary for their political opposition. I think you bring up a good point, but the, the only thing that I think about when you're talking about kind of the warfare of those different groups is many of the ones that you cite as those who are like morally opposed to other people inside their own uh, their own movement. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing is that the it seems like the culture is assimilating those adverse movements faster than they are pushing back against the culture. Right. Yeah, so I, by I the. I don't know how long it's going to exist or, okay. or, or go on. I think at some point there is going to be a breakup. Uh, you know, the uh, the black nationalists may humor this sort of uh, effeminate kid who's changing his gender or something like that. Uh, they despise them, you know, and they uh, they probably feel sick being in the same alliance system with them. You are right that they keep you know they keep on moving, but at some point it will be a question of of who gets to run the show. And I think that, that of, of course, they may by then have destroyed everything because they're a totally destructive force. Um, but I think they will they will start fighting with each other. You know, I think that's true. Like I said, I just think, uh, you know, think of like second or third generation Muslim, you know, children are parroting more talking points from the woke left than they are mm -hmm. their own religious doctrine against the, the aspects of the woke left that they would, in theory, oppose. So, I, yeah, uh, but, but they're all anti-Western. I mean, they, sure. they hate Western Christian society and uh, they may hate it for, but they also may hate it for different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, like, you know, the kid who's overdosing on drugs and is changing his gender or something has, has a different reason to hate Western civilization than the Muslim uh, who comes here or the black nationalist. It, it's not, but they're, they're willing to cooperate because of what they hate. Uh, here my... The influence of Carl Schmidt keeps keeps creeping in about friend enemy relations, right. but uh, it, it is it is the sheer hostility I think which uh, which allows the alliance to cohere, and I think at some point it is going to, it, it will break up. The question is just when, in in my view. So once they've defeated the shared public enemy, eventually they'll have no mm -hmm. other option but to turn inward on on the coalition. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's there's a lot of validity to that. So so we've discussed the therapeutic state here. I wanted to hit a few other things 
that I think are, are pretty relevant. You're a gentleman who's been known for, I would think it would be fair to characterize you as a paleo conservative in many ways. Do you think that would be fair? Yeah, that's that's true. Although I, if you read this, this new anthology we put on paleoconservatism, it's obvious that there are many differences within the paleoconservative. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, we say we agree about first principle, but, it's, you know, if I, if I look at some of the younger people associated with the paleoconservative camp, they tend to be populist, right wing populist, heavily mm-hmm. influenced by Sam Francis, James Burnham, and to a lesser extent by my writing. Um, the older generation of paleoconservatives uh, tend to be sort of social reactionaries, um, high church Anglicans, Catholics, uh, who are sort of hungering for a Catholic church that ceased to exist a long time ago. Um, but the, uh, they, they really have very different, they're sort of different mindsets, though they, they do cooperate. Um, and in terms of the conservative establishment, they both are outsiders. Although, if I'm not mistaken, about this, some of the younger populists um, may become the wave of the future. They're not going to be isolated the way I spent my life, you know. And uh, you, you go to—I went to this national conservative conference, which I spoke, and um, you know, most of those young people sounded very much like me. I was telling my wife it was scary because I was like isolated for the last sixty years, and really, you know, now everyone's going to sound like me, or I sound like them. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I think uh, the, the paleoconservatives of a younger generation are becoming right-wing populist. Uh, the paleoconservatives of an older generation, I think, are of, of a different cast of mind. I think that's very interesting, and that is the the aspect that I wanted to talk to you about because I do think it's interesting that a gentleman like yourself, you know, was at the you know the national convention here that so many people who are up and coming in conservatism mm-hmm. seem to be falling away from this old, uh, the, the, this kind of 80s and 90s coalition and mm-hmm. moving um, much mm-hmm. towards the ideas of guys like you, Sam Francis, Pat Buchanan, a, re- a big recognition recently I've noticed about, you know, kind of the validity of many predictions of, of guy, a guy like Pat Buchanan. And, and I've, again, I'm sure you guys have your differences, but just very interesting that there's been a big shift, like you said, of the many of the people who are offering solutions are in many ways reaching back to a tradition that might have been diversified, but it has been held very outside the conservative mainstream for a long time. Yeah, I I think what the paleoconservatives begin with is a critique. Mm. And as I I argue in some of my books on conservatism, they are not the same, you know, as the conservatives of the 19th century or some some other period, Um, nor are they identical with the post-war conservative movement of the 1950s, which was pretty much thrown together by Bill Buckley and his friends and was focused on fighting the communist menace. Although there were people who become associated with that, with that movement, who later become paleoconservatives. But the paleoconservatives begin with a critique of neoconservatism, you know, and they tend to be generally on the right of the neoconservatives on social questions, uh, social and cultural questions. And they start with a critique um, uh, how can you call yourself a conservative if you believe in, you know, spreading democracy all over the, why, why is your view, why are democracy and human rights to be considered conservative positions? Um, so th- th- this, this, I think is the beginning of, of, of a paleoconservative protest 
which it is, it's, 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 it sort of never moves much beyond that. It is a protest against the neoconservative takeover of the right, which is not led by people who necessarily were part of the Bill Buckley conservatism, although some of the people associated with do become paleoconservatives. The, the, the paleoconservative leaders, myself included, um, uh, typically come from the second or third rank conservatives of the, of the earlier period, where we're not the leaders, mm-hmm. um, but, we, but we do lead the opposition to the neoconservatives, for, for which we are um, pretty much pushed out of the conservative movement. We're called racist, anti-Semites, any, any, any name they could call us. Um, and for a while, we rely to, liberta- to sort of right-wing libertarians with whom we've remained friendly. Um, although when I, I'm, I really cannot consider myself a libertarian. Um, but I, I, think, I think what happens is much of that paleo critique is taken over by the younger generation. And you're right, they, they become much more um, uh, important or significant in the conservative movement um, in the in the last ten years, five to ten years, despite the fact they have very few resources, because the people with all the resources are part of the Murdoch media empire, right? The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, uh, National Review. Um, uh, the, the 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 people on our side uh, have none of this control. We we have you know we have less money, less media access to media, and so forth. Yet I I think we are we are making up for the gap between ourselves and the, you know, the people who hold uh, all these good cards. Um, one, of, one of the things I've, I've observed with our magazine is that we are a high quality magazine, but we don't, have, we don't have many resources. National Review is becoming an awful magazine. It's barely readable, but you know, they're sitting on a gold mine. You know, people throw money at them. They can be on Fox News, write for the Wall Street Journal. We have none of these things on our side. Yet I think we are making headway, <clears throat> which, you know, is sort of an argument that there is a zeitgeist and, uh, uh, on the right. And we, we represent it even if we do not have the resources of those who still dominate the, um, the heights of the uh, uh, conservative uh, establishment. Yeah, I think the reason that so much of this has been powerful and, you you know, say what you want about Donald Trump, but he should always, I think, get credit for his ability to kind of shatter the window when it comes to the discussion of what was allowed of the conservative movement prior to him and what isn't. And, you know, these issues like immigration and foreign policy, the, the economy and the protection of jobs, things that the conservative movement was actively against their own base and fought their own base tooth and nail at every step now is getting increasingly difficult for the conservative mainstream to continue to do this. We see much of conservative Washington still trying to support things like intervention in, in Ukraine and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But but they are running into more and more uh, contestation from their own base. It's getting harder and harder for that. And I think that's why the dialogue is shifting. The right wasn't allowed to interact with its vanguard the way the left was for most, you know, for most of your lifetime and certainly all of my lifetime. But now it seems almost essential because what's left of the conservative establishment has so little to offer its base that if they don't reach outside of their current worldview, they're, you know, they're just drowning. No, I think, I think you're right. But I, I think the most important factor um, in explaining the reorientation of the right um, is is corporate capitalism. Mm. For years, for most of my life, 
the right defended corporate capitalism, right? I mean, people like the Bush family, you know, they supported, right? And and others, you know, and of course, what we were in favor of capitalism. Capitalism meant big business, um, and you heard this for 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 for, for many years. Um, I think what has become obvious is that corporate capitalism now stands with the cultural left. So if you want to make an argument, you know, in favor of the working class against the these corporate boards, uh, it's very easy to do uh, in a way that was not true when the working class voted for, you know, democratic political candidates. And it was assumed that corporate capitalists would side with the cultural social right. No, I, I think that's that's absolutely true. Uh, so the last part of this that I wanted to talk about, and, and we have a lot of questions stacking up here, so mm-hmm. maybe we won't go too long on this one, but I thought I wanted to get your opinion. I think that one of the things that's very difficult for conservatives to understand, um, I've, I've made this argument a few times, is that when, for instance, they're having the discussion on you know uh, trans kids or something, they think they're having a discussion about biology, like the, the biological facts of the situation. I explained to them they're having an argument about the civil rights revolution, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, that the right of the government to enter into the family is inextricably linked to the right of the government to interfere with other personal mm-hmm. decisions that people make. And I think that it's very difficult for them to understand like the legal framework and what is happening. I mean, Christopher Caldwell's book about the age of entitlement, I think has done mm-hmm. a lot of work here recently. Mm-hmm. It's something that more people are acknowledging, but it's still a hard concept for them to grasp. I totally agree with you. I, I read uh, Christopher Caldwell's, I agreed with him. Uh, and I was absolutely shocked to find that he was writing for Weekly Standard and National yeah. Review. Yes. <laughs> because he's on our side. <laughs> yeah. uh, he probably wouldn't recognize that because we don't have the influence or power that his present allies do. But, you know, you're absolutely correct. Um, I have argued this for many years and I've been attacked as a racist uh, or insensitive or something like that. Uh, as, I, as I point out, in order to say that arguing that the civil rights revolution um, really is the beginning point for the wokeness and everything we're now seeing does not mean that I think Jim Crow is nice uh, or, you know, we should forgive whoever killed Medgar Evers or so forth. Um, history is very complex. And uh, sometimes um, uh, sometimes you can find some good that is linked or tied up with things that are very bad. And I think the civil rights revolution is one of them that, you know, there was a just cause behind it, but it empowered institutions that have totally destroyed society, American society. And to some extent, I think this has influenced European society because Europe is a satellite of ours, Western Europe particularly. They do whatever we do five minutes later um, and they read our books. And, you know, I say this as a European historian and I speak several languages and I can write several, I, I, I understand. I, you know, Europe had a great civilization. It doesn't any longer. I don't see evidence of this. So at the United States, um, uh, United States heavily influences or shapes the values of European countries, Western Europe, to a lesser extent, Eastern Europe, but even in Eastern Europe, this is now true. Uh, <clears throat> Hungary being one of the few holdouts. Um, but the, uh, I think this, the civil rights revolution has a profound, profoundly bad influence on American society. It, it does produce some good. I mean, you know, if a black family can eat at a restaurant in the South and they were kept, I, I'm, I'm not sure that without the civil rights revolution, those things would not have happened anyhow, but the civil rights revolution certainly hastened them. 
Um, <clears throat> what it did, however, was to bring government social engineering into every aspect of our life. And the people who held these positions were social radicals who've radicalized our society. <clears throat> and remember, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 not only dealt with blacks, it also covered women. So we were able to carry out the feminist revolution at the same time. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the position taken by some conservative groups that I find absolutely insufferable is to argue that all these bad things sort of happened five minutes ago, where things mm -hmm. were going quite well, you know, and, you know, gay marriage is okay, and this is, and maybe the, the gender reassignment is going a little too far or something. Uh, and of course, next week, it'll be, it's not, it will not be gender reassignment, it'll be sexualizing the very young, although gender reassignment will be okay, you know, for older people. It just keeps moving and going with the flow. And I, I think <clears throat> as scholars, it behooves us to go back and to see the foundations of what we're now living through. And uh, <clears throat> I certainly think the civil rights move, uh, movement is, is, is an integral uh, an integral part of it. It, it, it is, it is, uh, it is foundational for understanding everything else that has happened. Um, the argument that somehow civil rights leaders would all be appalled if they saw what is happening is untrue. John Lewis, Jim Clyburn, other civil rights pioneers are happy with everything else that's happened since then. You know, they've gone along with every stage of the revolution. Uh, quite possibly Martin Luther King uh, would do that as well if he were still alive at the age of 100 and something. But um, <clears throat> I, I think it's important to understand that without looking at the civil rights revolution, you cannot understand the managerial institutional basis for the revolution that we're living through. Yeah, and it's amazing. I think you're right to point out that you can have something that was a real problem and 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 as Caldwell points out, was approached by most of Americans, probably in good faith, willing to grant the government these powers mm -hmm. in, in their thought temporarily to solve a problem that they thought didn't really affect their area. And suddenly the government has this power. It wouldn't be the first time you think that small government conservatives would understand that handing government domain in these areas was not mm -hmm. going to end just at the problem they want solved. Uh, yeah, well, one of the things I find interesting is, well, the Civil Rights Commission will be okay because we're putting this black person in who may, may be a Republican or may think of voting. Uh, even if you have this black person who's a Republican, the whole institution is terrible. You know, it's it's there to engage in social engineering. You want to get rid of it. Um, and at this point, you have so many layers of, of social engineering bureaucracy. You don't even know where to begin. And by the way, it's not just at the state level. Uh, it's at the, at the federal level, it's the state level, at the local level, uh, and it's invaded the entire educational system, including medical school and engineering school. Which is particularly terrifying because that's when that competence breakdown really comes. All these really people counts. who thought that, yeah, with everyone who thought the scientism <laughs> would protect us, that those things would remain yeah. neutral is quickly learning that actually mm -hmm. that that isn't the case. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a few questions here. I see some excellent ones forming up here. I'm sure the audience would like to pick your brain on some different topics here. So let's check real quick. Uh, Narco Republican here for $5 asks, Mr. Gottfried, are you familiar with the philosopher uh, Byung Chula, maybe the way you say that? I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Uh, Han's idea of the palliative society, it's somewhat similar to the therapeutic state. It looks like something that a Chinese scholar meditated on and he came up with this uh, with this term i mm. i i can i have some idea what the palliative state means but i've never read the uh the chinese scholar who came up with the term 
All right, let's go ahead and see uh, Brad Denton here just donating. Thank you very much, Brad. Appreciate that. Uh, Creeper Weirdo, Weirdo for $5. Thank you. Is wokeism the attempt of communists to use capitalism to lead to a communist revolution? I remember hearing that idea somewhere. You went into that uh, a little bit, but I don't know if you want to uh, touch on that anymore. No, I, I, th I think this uh, gentleman might might forget that notion. Uh, it's totally misleading. We have uh, Heath here for $5. Is this basically biologism giving high status to low status people, but based on social hierarchy rather than economics? Uh, well, I think, you know, uh, Mr. Gottfried had already uh, addressed to some level mm -hmm. that, yeah, it is a coalition of those who benefit from kind of the reconstruction of the social hierarchy of mm -hmm. the West. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have Brad Denton here again, again for $10. Thank you, sir. Gottfried is exactly right. The church suffers from the same leftward ratchet that neocons animate in the political. It is the precisely because we have unwittingly accepted the therapeutic framework for thinking about issues that the Bible speaks of solely in moral terms. That's very interesting. Yes, the, the entry of the therapeutic not only into the government, but into every realm, including ones like theology that you think would exclude it from its, mm -hmm. from kind of its realm. Yeah, he's correct. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let's see here. We've got one more, I believe. Uh, TB88 for $10. Thank you very much. Uh, is AI run society the final form of managerialism? All spheres of human life are managed by therapeutic AI, removing the decisions human uh, of human action that is vilified in favor of procedure. Many people do have this fear that artificial intelligence, after being given mm -hmm. a framework of wokeism, will then be placed in charge of many of these uh, many of these different institutions, creating kind of a, a feedback loop that will accelerate it mm -hmm. even further. No, I, I think that's possible. Uh, the uh, there, There's absolute woke fanaticism <laughs> by now. And, you know, it, it sort of it, per, it permeates most scientific and technological activities. So this, this would not surprise me if it eventually happened. And then one more here from ZZ 7 Thank you. $5 Canadian. Sorry about Canada. Uh, stream, uh, uh, Steam programming is now shoehorned into anti-Black racism programs at a base level. May this be the start of infighting? Interesting. Yeah, we have seen a number of people asserting that many of these fields, like we already talked about, are are anti-black in their nature. Um, do you see that as a as a possible fracture of the coalition there? What does STEAM stand for? I think he might have meant STEM, but I could be wrong. Uh, that's what I assumed he was talking about. If if not, maybe he'll be able to clarify that. But but if we just want to go with that, with that yeah, interpretation. No, I, I, I think there will inevitably be competition for getting the plums of government, you know, for, by, by these, by these groups. Um, what, uh, one of the things I've, I've written on is the way Republicans um, uh, pretend that the people who vote for the Democrats, particularly racial minorities, are just victims. They're no way responsible for what they do. Um, <clears throat> and therefore we have to champion uh, charter schools uh, because these people are being victimized. Well, my, my view is, is much crueler. Uh, it is that the people who voted for the Democratic Party in New York and voted against um, uh, voted against Zeldin, who was a perfectly reasonable candidate, who would have given them money for charter schools, deserve what they get. And, you know, if they and the teachers unions fight within the Democratic Party, that's great. 
Uh, I see no reason for Republicans, you know, to run to the rescue of people who don't like them, you know, and say that they're victims um, and we have to help them. Um, I I think I think it's very, very bad politics to do something like that. Uh, But but there will inevitably be clashes among the uh, the groups that are, you know, vying for special favors as victims within the the therapeutic order. Yeah, I think we're already seeing that. For instance, um, many of the uh, establishment left who are white have already figured out that they can move to like non-binary as a as a quick hack to get around the the uh, establishment hierarchy. Right. And they can Mm -hmm. get they they, and many of the uh, minorities in that group, racial minorities are now very angry at them. There's infighting already Mm -hmm. inside that as to whether this is a legitimate oppression Mm -hmm. status, because it's so easy for, you know, uh, for uh, white leftists to go ahead and mimic victimhood by by using this by mm-hmm. just, you know, wearing some different clothes or something. So yeah, I, I, right. I haven't quite heard how feminist and Muslim fundamentalists uh, can be united. They are an Elon Omar, right? I mean, she tries to be, she's both an extreme Muslim and a radical feminist at the same time. A person like her would not be allowed to exist, you know, in a Muslim, most Muslim countries. Um, uh, she'd have to choose one or the other. If she chose to be a radical feminist, she'd have to live here or in some other Western country. I have one more question for you before we wrap up, because you, you got me thinking about this with with the failures of of, of STEM and, and these other fields. What do you think about the counter counter elites, like the possibility of guys like Elon Musk? Are they going to emerge more frequently because they can't do the things they want to do inside the woke uh, social structure? Will we start to see people try to escape this simply because they can no longer explore Mars or something while shackled to the hierarchy that's being established by kind of the woke uh, uh, agenda? Yeah, I, I think to some extent, um, you know, Musk does believe what he says. He believes in open discussion, which obviously the woke le- the left does not. Somebody like Bezos can ex- could do very well, right? Um, uh, even, even if they're... Uh, uh, even if he's shackled and has to accept, you know, woke positions and so forth, he doesn't seem to mind. Um, and, they, you know, there, 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 there are many other people within the leftist orbit who, who operate that way and are making a lot of money. Um, mm. I, I think, you know, we, we have to uh, um, give credit to Musk for breaking from this. Um, now, he, he may be able to make some, a little more money in the end or something like that, but I, I, th- I think he was really acting out of conviction. And uh, uh, he's some he's some sort of left libertarian, but a libertarian. And I think he's genuinely offended uh, by, by what Twitter did in closing people's accounts because uh, because they didn't agree with the, the political left. So uh, I, I think he was acting out of conscience. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping this up. But Dr. Godfrey, before we go, I know you said there's an anthology coming out with Chronicles, and I would really love it if you would give my audience a book recommendation to start. If they've never read your work, where would you uh, suggest that they begin? I know there's a lot there, but but if you could just hand them one book, what, what would it be? I, it's, sort of, it's sort of very hard to decide. And sure. most of my books are difficult reading. Um, look at the book of multiculturalism and the politics of guilt published, I think, in 19, uh, 2002 or 2003. Uh, some of the examples I give are dated by now because, his, you know, the current events just keep changing. Um, but the, uh, you, you might find the, the structure of ideas interesting in the critique of the left. Um, 
another book I recommend is my book on anti-fascism, which came out two years ago. Um, and is an attempt to sort of make sense of woke ideology through the prism of anti-fascism and the various interpretations of fascism, you know, since the 1930s, um, the current defini definitions um, are entirely arbitrary. They have nothing to do with historic fascism anymore. Right. Uh, so yeah, I recommend right. that. And there, will be, there will be an anthology um, on paleoconservatism, but Lexington Books is bringing that out. And that will be available by next month, by February, early February. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, thank you guys for coming by. And thank you to Dr. Gottfried. Really appreciate it. I think this is a fascinating stream. I know a lot of people were very excited about it. So very happy to have you on. Guys, if it's your first time here, please make sure that you are subscribing to the channel. And of course, if you want to listen to this as a podcast, remember that you can go ahead and subscribe to the Orrin McIntyre podcast on all the major platforms. If you do so, go ahead and make sure that you give it a rating or a review that really helps with everything. But thanks for talking to us, guys. And as always, we'll see you next time.